vomit is hard to get the smell out. I don't know what fish vomit's like. I, I, I haven't had any experience with that. But is there any time gap? Does he have any money left over from the fact that he had to pay for a fare all the way to Spain? Or is he just having to rinse those clothes off and put those back on and, and go? And what's the time difference between where he goes? It doesn't tell us. It kind of suppresses all those neat little information that, that we might like. There's an interesting point that in verse 3, where it says it's an exceedingly great city, there's an interesting phenomenon that the word for God can have a meaning of majesty or great. And there's a prepositional phrase that has the name God plus the preposition. And, and it's used here, it's, it's uh, translated exceedingly great, but it could mean that the city was great to the Lord. And most translators decide to, to use the adverb there, exceedingly, uh, rather than to translate it as uh, it was a great city to God. And one would have to wonder, in what sense is this city great to God? How is it that this city, outside of Israel, outside of the promised land, how does this city become a great city to, to God? Why does he consider it a great city uh, for himself? Uh, we have to wonder also about the message that, that, they, uh, that Jonah preached. The, the typical, thus saith the Lord, is not present. It's not present, so it, you kind of wonder, was this the message that, that God told Jonah to say? Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the message, if you look at it, it's all about destruction. Uh, modern individuals who, who teach about preaching and preaching technique, they, they tell you to avoid being negative, uh, avoid being harsh on people, you know, use positive. People like to be influenced positively. They, they don't like just uh, down. I mean, everything he does is just kind of really negative. Um, can a, such a sermon work? Will it have an effect on people? I mean, or are they just going to uh, throw them out? You wonder by the end of verse 4, is there going to be a good effect from such a sermon? Because we don't really know if, if it's actually the words, the actual words that the Lord said. It, it kind of lacks this, thus saith the Lord thing. And so we wonder, will this sermon work? Now, what we're going to be looking at today is that God's wrath and mercy should motivate us towards an active submission to His will. Active submission in the sense that we can sometimes become submissive to God in this passive sense in that... Uh, we say, I'm going to obey God in those areas that it kind of conforms to what I already do. Uh, I'd like to come to church on Sunday, so I'm passively being uh, obedient. Uh, active obedience is where those areas of your life that collide with what God wants you to do, and you submit to what God says rather than doing what you want to do. That, that's an active submission to God's will. And, and so actively submit to his will and, and generous pursue, generously pursue those who are lost. Uh, pursuing those who are lost with generosity. Uh, we see this in this text. The, the first point is that act, we should actively submit to God by believing in him. 
Notice uh, in verse 5, we're going to see, well, not just in verse 5, but in this text, we're going to see three reactions. And the first reaction is that of the people of Nineveh. It says, and the people of Nineveh believed. It's an interesting case in uh, stem that we see here, that, that word believe. It, it kind of has this idea that they, they caused themselves to believe. They, they heard this information that Jonah gave to them. They processed that information. You know, we don't know in what language he had to say it. You know, <laughs> the first time they were able to capture exactly what he said, or they were like trying to process the accent, and they're like, these foreigners always trying to tell us stuff. Well, what is he saying? They hear Jonah, they process that information, and then it says that they believed. The, the, these men of Nineveh, these wicked men, they believed. These Gentiles, they're, they're believing. It's not the first case that we see this this word that uh, appear with a Gentile. The first time that we see this appear is in Genesis chapter 15 and verse 6. Uh, you'll remember the text that says, And he, referring to Abraham, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Uh, Abraham believed God, and it was counted as righteousness. Uh, that verse, verse 6, is, is a Janus. It, it defines the actions that were previous to that verse and those that come afterwards. Uh, what defined Abraham's life was a belief in, in the Lord, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Here, they are believing. Now, these uh, it's one thing to think about uh, Abraham, the father of the elect nation, him, him believing in God, but, but these are, are evil men. I mean, evil and somehow, in listening to this, they realize that they have offended a holy God and uh, that they were wicked and they were going to be destroyed. Now, uh, could this really be believed? What is it that they're believing in exactly? Well, the, the verse says, uh, the people of Nineveh believed in God. They believed in God. As in uh, the, lo the location as in their belief was placed in, in the person of God. They are believing in Him. Uh, and, and this is very interesting. It, it's the same grammatical construction that's found in, in Genesis 15, verse 6, where Abraham put his faith in, in God. The Ninevites are putting their faith in, in God as well. Uh, what's interesting is they're, they're believing, and the revelation that they have is not very much. But in a way, they are believing that God has revealed himself to them, specifically that he has revealed himself to them through the prophet Jonah, and that Jonah has communicated this truthfully to them. They also are, are believing that they have actually offended this God. That he, as the, the thing goes where he says, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. They are having to believe this revelation, and they have to believe that they have offended God in some fashion. And not only that they have offended God, but they are believing that Jonah's God can make good on the promise that he can destroy uh, Nineveh. Now that's, that's quite the promise. I mean, we, we sometimes promise things all the time and, and we have no way of following through, you know, and we are hoping that the person doesn't call us out on the bluff. But here their, their faith is in, in the fact that God communicates, 
that he's communicated through Jonah and that Jonah has communicated this truthfully. They have believed that they have offended God and furthermore, they have believed that he can make good on the promise that he will destroy Nineveh. Now, as we look at that, uh, what did they do based on that, on that belief? Well, as you see in the, in the verse, it, it clearly st- says that they walked forward and they filled out a cap card, and then they went to church's chicken and got some fried chicken and mashed potatoes and had a good old time. It's not what they did, was it? It says that they believed and they called a fast. It's, um, it's this idea of withholding, usually it's food, but it's withholding those things that are you tend to do daily. It's, it's withdrawing from those things uh, so that you can focus on crying out to God. The first occurrence of this word we find in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 16. You remember the, the situation where... Uh, David and Bathsheba, the the son of Bathsheba, is sick and is about to die. And David is crying out to God to please to spare this this baby. And he is praying to God and he is fasting. We know at the end the baby dies. But it, it shows in this first occurrence of this word that fasting comes out of a situation where the situation is just very really dire. It, it, it's really desperate. And you have had no interest in food, you have no interest in the daily activities because you are calling out to God to do something in this situation that you have no control over at all. What's interesting is that they are doing this to a God that they don't know. They're fasting. And then they're they're to put on sackcloth. Now this is a, a very rough, rough material. It's not, there's not a there's not a pretty way of putting on sackcloth. There's not like an elegant way, like, uh, you know, different cut styles of it. And you're like, I, I like this cut style. I really prefer the ones from Macy's than the one from Dellard's. They're, they're so cut much better. No, th- this, is, this is something that on the outside you look hideous in. And not only do you look hideous, uh, you can tell that the person is mourning and sad. It, 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 not just that, but as you put it on your skin... It, it itches and it feels rough. It's not comfortable. It, it's, it itches and it's, and it's rough. So, so that inside, inside, their stomach is growling and hungry. On the outside, their skin is itchy. There is no way of ignoring their situation. They can't get distracted. They can't turn on the TV and, and watch the, the ball game. They go to sit down on the couch and their skin touches the sackcloth and they itch even more. There's no way of distracting themselves from this situation, from this sermon that they've heard. We have a tendency of distracting ourselves, but they're not going to do that. They've heard this and they have believed, and because they have believed, they're causing an internal uh, pain by not having food. They're causing an external pain by being dressed in a certain way that is itchy and uncomfortable. This is what they've done. This is their reaction. Who, Who does it involve? It says, from the greatest to the least of them. From the greatest can have a meaning of the oldest, or it can have a meaning of of status, like from the very, very rich individuals. And then to the least of them can mean also very young, or those who are very, very poor. 
Everyone is supposed to be involved in this. The, uh, the reaction is going throughout the whole city. He goes one day preaching this, this message. And he's, he's a Hebrew. He, he, he speaks Hebrew. They speak Aramaic. He has to go and, and say this. And you can imagine trying to give a message in a different language. You stutter, but I mean, praise the Lord, it's a very short message. They process it, and the whole city is reacting this way. Where they're turning in such a way, in such a fashion. Now, that's the first reaction. In verse 6, we, we see a second reaction. It says, when the word reached the king of Nineveh. That word there, uh, reached, it's an interesting word because it kind of has the idea of, of being struck, struck violently. So in other words, that this information came to him and it's just not like a little note that was passed to him and he goes, huh, that's interesting. But rather, it, it's, it's this information that just hit him, punched him in the face. And you can see by his reaction that it did. It was like a punch in the face uh, because of what he ends up doing. It says he arose from his throne. He laid aside his robes. He covered himself with sackcloth. And he sat in ashes. The word ashes here, we, we remember of another Gentile that, that did this. It communicates this uh, extreme sadness or mourning. You remember the other place where this occurs is over there in um, Job where uh, Job uh, is living his life, doing sacrifices unto the Lord for his family, a very rich man, and um, God tells uh, Satan to point his attention to Job, and, and Satan starts attacking his family. And he hears that his sons, his daughters have died. He hears that his uh, possessions have been burnt up. He hears of all this destruction, and then finally Satan goes back to him, and and says, well, I haven't been able to touch him. And God says, you can touch him, just don't kill him. So boils start coming out on his skin. And when his friends come and find him in chapter 2, verse 7 and 8, they find him sitting in a pile of ashes, scratching the boils on his skin. He's in extreme, extreme mourning, extreme sadness. You can imagine how dusty and dirty you get with ash. It just goes all over the place. And this is how this king is. He, he's sitting in ashes to show this, 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 this despair that he has. He's taking it very, very seriously. He's not worried that someone's going to take a picture and put it on Facebook or on Twitter. He, he, he is humbling himself because the situation is really dire. His family is about to be destroyed. He's about to be destroyed. His kingdom is about to be destroyed. And so he's there in this situation. Now, what does he, what does he do? Well, uh, we see in verse 7. Uh, in verse 7, he says, He issued a proclamation. And it said, In Nineveh, by decree of the king and his nobles. So it's not just the king that is feeling this way, but the nobility is also feeling this way. They're, they're to do something. What's the decree? Do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. They're not to eat. They're not to drink. 
Now, the people have reacted, but uh, the king and the noblemen have kind of escalated the situation a little bit more. Now it's man and beast aren't to eat. Um, I'm not really one to be around a lot of animals. I know you guys probably can't tell that, but I'm not usually around cows and horses and so forth. Um, but um, so we have to think now in terms of, of ancient Near East, because uh, right now here in the States, usually you think about a house, a farmhouse, and then kind of a barn over there somewhere else in the property. But in, in this situation, you got to think of a city, very compact, uh, animals are, are brought in, in into part of the house. Uh, so as the animals do not have food and water, from what I understand, they'll start to make their call sounds. They'll start to make noise. In other words, you could imagine that the, the noise level in the city of people calling out to God and the animals calling out to God, at, at per se, uh, it, it's really noisy there in the city. I mean, extremely noisy. People are calling out, and the animals, without having any food, they're making their sounds. And, and maybe the idea is they're the only innocent ones here. Maybe God will listen to the animals because uh, we're guilty. Maybe he'll listen to the animals. What else are they supposed to do? But um, both man and beast must be covered in sackcloth. Even the animals, they're supposed to look like they're mourning. That they're sad. Let, let men call on God earnestly. Uh, earnestly. It, it's an it's a interesting way, an interesting word. It, it has this idea of let them call forcefully. In fact, uh, a lot of the different places that it's used, it, it's used kind of in a, in a fight or contention. For example, it's used in Judges chapter 4, verse, verse 3 where it's talking about the king of Canaan, and he has been uh, oppressing the sons of Israel severely for 20 years, or forcefully. It's the same word that is describing the way they're supposed to be praying to God, the way that uh, the king of Canaan was uh, severely oppressing Israel. That's how they're supposed to call out. Also, you see in Judges chapter 8, verse 1, the men of Ephraim, they come, and they're mad with um, Gideon because he has attacked the king of uh, Midian, and uh, they are very much against him. They're contending with him vigorously. They, you see this word appearing in, in the form of like a battle, where somebody is, is kind of being really forceful towards another party. And this is what they're doing, but it's, it's not uh, this idea of that they're trying to attack God, but forcefully they are praying. It's not like some little quick prayer, you know, help me, Jesus. It's not like that. It's a desperation where they're calling out to God. And they're calling out rather seriously to Him, forcefully. That each man turn from his wicked way, his, way, his wicked lifestyle. Each one is supposed to do this. And from the violence which is in those hands. That's what they want to do. Uh, a turning. In other words, they were acting this way, and they're supposed to cease doing that and start acting this way. They were thinking this way, you stop thinking that way, and you start thinking this way. A turn from your way of life. Turn from the violence that's in your hands. That's what they call them to do. 
And it says there in verse 9, uh, who knows? It's an interesting thought, because we have to wonder who does know. Well, Jonah knows, but Jonah's kind of preoccupied. <laughs> we don't see him in the narrative anymore. It's been consumed by the Ninevites and their reaction, by the king, by his noblemen. Where is Jonah? Who knows? Jonah knows. Where is Jonah? Israel knows. God called Israel to be a light unto the Gentiles. Israel knows. Israel can give them the answer. Where is Israel? Well, at the time of Jonah, it says that Israel was doing evil in the sight of the Lord. They were living for their own passions, for their own desires. They couldn't be used of the Lord to give an answer. It says, who knows? God may turn. It, it corresponds to the fact that they are turning from their wicked way. It says, he might turn and relent, withdraw his burning anger. Burning anger, it's uh, made of of two words, and it has to, one of the words has to do with um, nose, uh, the, the fact that a person's nose, the nostrils flare when they're mad, and so it, uh, it has this, that God's nose is, is flared. We saw that in the psalm that we read today, his nostrils flared. It, it's a, he's very upset. He says they're hoping that his anger uh, will, will subside, and that we will not perish. Who knows about this God? Jonah knows. But where is Jonah? Israel knows if God can be turned, if God will not cause them to perish. God knows. I mean, Israel knows, but where is Israel? Israel's off living wickedly. Here they are, they have a certain amount of revelation, but they're lacking a, a, a bit more. There's the interesting uh, tense of will not perish. It, since it, it's a modal, it kind of gives it this idea of maybe, but we're not for sure. Maybe we will not perish. There's uncertainty. Maybe if we turn and maybe if we stop this violence, maybe we will not perish. But we don't know. We see in this uh, text that um, we must actively submit to God by believing in Him. And they did believe in Him. Now, I, I want to caution us here uh, because there might be a, a temptation to look at this text and make some inferences that I don't think would be necessarily biblical. They are believing in God, and we must believe in God. Uh, but is that the sum total of the revelation? You might say, well, well, yes, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Rahab believed the stories of, of God and, and so forth, and of Israel and so forth, and, and she believed and she stayed inside the room, and and that was the totality. And here the Ninevites, they, they believe God through what they heard of the prophet, and that's the totality of it, and, and that's good enough. Some might argue that to be saved, all you have to do is just believe God. 
Some might take it a step further in a really bad direction and said not, not only all you have to do is believe God, but you can believe any God. It, it, can, be, it can be Allah. It can be any of the gods of India. You just have to believe in a higher power, whatever that might be. Could be the force on Star Wars. Just believe in something. Now, is that what we see going on here? Can we do just like Abraham and the Ninevites and Rahab and just believe God? Is that enough? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes, we believe God. Yes, we have offended God. Yes, we believe that he is holy and he will punish us with death, We're separate from God. But there's a sense that it's no also. And the sense that it's no is that the revelation is progressive. In that what um, Abraham and Rahab and the Ninevites have is not what has been revealed now. We have so much more revelation. We, we have, in fact, the Bible in our hands and we can see his, his revelation. Uh, we see so much more that God has revealed himself in, in different ways. In fact, if you go to Hebrews chapter 1, 1 through 3, it said that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets and many uh, portions in many ways. In the last days, he's spoken to us in his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Uh, it says that, uh, verse 3 of Hebrews 1, that he is the radiance of his glory, the exact representation of his nature. Th this Jesus that he has revealed in the last time ends up being what we believe in. He is the word of God become flesh. Now, there's an interesting narrative section that we see in uh, John chapter 6. And let's just go over there really quickly. John chapter 6, it's an interesting story. It starts off at the beginning with um, Jesus, and he is uh, feeding uh, a whole multitude of people. And then he crosses over Galilee. He's over on the other side, and the people that have eating the food, they, they find Jesus, and they come over there, and they're looking for him. And they want more food. They're not believing in the sign, but they, they want more food. Now, it says uh, over in verse 29, so we're in John chapter 6, and uh, verse 29, he uh, says, And Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God. What is the work of God? What, what could the work of God be? That you believe in him whom he has sent. Well, who did, Jesus, who did God send? He sent Jesus. What's the work that he's doing? That the person believe in whom he sent, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, we see furthermore, uh, this idea get, uh, develops some more. For example, in, in verse 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes in me will never thirst. But it's coming to Jesus. It's not just believing in God in general. It's the coming to the person of the Jesus Christ and putting your faith in him. Uh, furthermore, verse 40, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up in, uh, on the last day. 
Uh, furthermore, over in verse 53, in uh, verse 53, they're talking, well, let's begin in verse 52. Then the Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Kind of a disgusting concept. I'm sure the disciples were like, Please don't bring up the whole flesh eating thing again. Uh, this is what Jesus says. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. How do you get life? By believing in the Son. God has revealed himself specifically through the Son. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. How is a person saved? By believing in God in general? No. Because we have progressive revelation and what's been revealed is you must believe in Jesus Christ. You must take him personally, just like you, you eat and you take that personally. You, you must accept him. Here, we're going back to Jonah. They are believing in God and we also believe in God specifically that his word has become flesh and we put our faith in Jesus Christ and what he did on the cross to save us of our sins. We don't just say, well, we hope that those tribes over there in Papua New Guinea, that they'll just believe in God. Why? Because there's more revelation. And specifically that revelation is Jesus Christ, that they must have him, partake of him to have life. Now, the other thing we see in this verse is, is that belief leads to actions. What did they do after they believed? Well, you know, the usual stuff. Get on with life and, and, and live for themselves. No. They ended up fasting and praying and, and it caused physical pain on their stomachs and on their skin. There was a change of attitude, a change of behavior. They stopped doing certain things and started engaging in other things. Belief leads to a change of behavior. Just like you are believing in the chairs and you're comfortably sitting there. None of you are kind of like, kind of standing up because you don't know if the chair is going to hold you. All of you are sitting very comfortably. Some of you extremely comfortably so that you're falling asleep. You're like, right? Why? You have faith and that faith leads to actions. I'm not talking about a lordship salvation thing. I'm talking about if a person believes it has an effect on them. There should be a change. It's always crazy to hear a person that has gotten saved and they've gone 10, 15, 20 years and they're no different from the day they got saved. I'm wondering, what did you put your faith in? What are you believing? Their belief led to actions. There was a change in their life. Now, as we see this, the last little part is that uh, generously pursue the lost. Verse 10. It says, God saw their deeds. Not that he listened to their prayers, but he saw their deeds. Their belief led to actions. He saw their deeds, and they turned from their wicked way. Then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared. God changed his mind instead of destroying them, and they did not perish. He, he did that. Instead of destroying them, he gave them mercy. Now, God was very merciful to them. 
They had done evil, and the evilness had come up before them. Uh, they were um, they were terrible people. They were like sailors on a furlough. They, I mean, they just were terrible, and it looks like God just let them off the hook. Is that possible, that God just let them off the hook? We might uh, think about that and think, why did God do that? Well, God is merciful to us, too. Now, you might say, well, God had to be less merciful to me than to the Ninevites. I mean, they were evil, evil people, but I was basically all right. I mean, I had this one little thing. I took care of it. I'm good now before the Lord. God had to be really merciful to them and only a little merciful to me. And that would be pride and arrogance that would say such a thing. The same mercy that he had to show to the Ninevites is the same mercy he had to show to them. Now, we see that God's mercy is shared generously. We have seen God's sovereignty Sovereign control over everything in chapters 1 and 2. But just as broad as God's sovereignty is, is God's mercy. As, as much as he has dominion over all things, so his mercy is, is abundant. Now, as we finish this and we see at the end of this, we have to think about what is this text about? Who is this message to? We might think, well, this message is, is for Nineveh. And maybe if we had Jonah here preaching it, and we were in Nineveh, we could say that. But that's not what we have before us, is it? What we have before us is a text. A text written to an audience. Who was the audience? Was it the Ninevites? I doubt it was written in Hebrew. Was this text for, for Jonah, for him to read it later on? No, it's for Israel. Here's a, a nation that called upon the Lord in belief and they changed their actions. Israel was going through solemn feast after solemn feast. They were going through ritual after ritual, but there was no change in behavior. And that's the sad thing that could even happen as we then apply it to the church. To think about coming Sunday after Sunday, going through ritual after ritual, taking Lord's Supper after Lord's Supper, and there being no change. None. Wouldn't that be a scary thought? As we think about this text, what was it to do? To call attention to Israel. And we apply it to ourselves and say, what about us? How should we live? Should we not show fruits of repentance? Should we not graciously share God's mercy with those who are lost? If God cares about them, should we not also care about the lost? Should we not generously show His mercy? They don't deserve it. <laughs> we don't deserve it either. We should act like God and graciously give His mercy to those who are lost. Father, I pray now as we consider this text and consider how we've been living. Father, we would be amiss to think that this text is about Nineveh. But really, it's about Israel. Going through ritual, but not caring about you, Father. Father, we make the application about to us. I pray that we will live 
in a way that's actively submissive to your will and that will graciously share, generously share your mercy with those who are lost. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you please stand with me and we'll have this time of invitation.